and give a huge monster welcome to David Westlake. Thank you very much indeed. Thank you very, very, very much indeed. Please sit down. So, um, we were reminded that we get together in order to encourage each other, and I've been so encouraged just in the first part of our time together tonight, so this has really worked for me. I appreciate now it's my turn, but even if this next bit goes badly, I've had a great time. So we can think of this as group therapy for me, all right? You can go home feeling really blessed. If there's a slide that can come up, uh, that's not that slide, as pretty as that one is. Uh, We'll wait, this is me just saying, hello, there we go. Um, and behind the HDMI 2 box is my wife, Meenu, um, who's from India. And that's on the left is actually now a slightly dated daughter of my, uh, dated picture of my daughter. She's 14 now. And um, she's, um, she doesn't like to come with me when I go speaking because she doesn't like seeing pictures of herself like that one on the screen. But I could look at it all night, so we're just going to linger on this slide for a while, if that's okay. Um, back when the world was young, I was a youth worker in uh, southeast London, um, in uh, Deptford and uh, Peckham, and uh, planted some churches in south London and then over in Watford, where I helped set up Soul Survivor, um, and still very involved in Soul Survivor. Joined something called Tear Fund. Okay, some, some nods and mmms, yeah. Those are the people going straight to heaven. <laughs> when, uh, and I was with Fund for 20 years, actually. It was a bit of a surprise, really. I was, God, I was church planting, training youth workers, thought this was going to be my life. And God interrupted me um, to convict me of the fact that we had concentrated so much on teaching the new generation of Christians how to love God with all their heart, we'd missed loving our neighbour as we loved ourselves. And that started a journey for me that said, how are we going to make Jesus real and personal in some of the toughest situations of the world? And I spent 20 years with Tear Fund, International Director of Tear Fund, and then just in November joined IJM, um, International Justice Mission, which you wonderfully support um, as a church, which means you're just one of the best churches in the world. Yeah. That's just an objective fact from... <laughs> And uh, do you know, um, my journey to IJM started 11 years ago. And it started when I was in Chiang Mai, which is a city in Thailand. And I was with a female colleague walking down a brightly lit shopping street in that city. And a young woman came up to me and asked me if I wanted to sleep with her. And her opening price was the equivalent of seven pounds. Lord only knows what I could have bargained her down to had I been so inclined. I was able to keep on walking, but she was not. The people I was working with there in um, Chiang Mai uh, worked in the bars and the clubs in that particular area. And so now I had a face, and so I asked about this girl who'd come up to me. And they did some research and some looking around, and they thought she was probably... She'd have been part of a cohort that came from the hill tribes, and she'd have probably been mid-teens, 14, 15. And she'll work that street until either she's dead or she's sold on. For me, God interrupted me again, because now I had a face, 
and an interaction. And I began to think about what it was for trafficking and for slavery in a world where we think we've put those things behind us. The reality of those for so many millions of people. And that started my journey to IGM. I made contact with IGM in, in the field around the world in my work there, and then was just delighted when it became possible to um, join uh, IGM last November. I, I'm always fascinated. I'd love, I'd love it if there was time for us to go around and say, what was your story that got you to this room tonight? You know, well, how did you end up being here? Um, some of you, I guess, were brought up in church. I was brought up in church. I've been going to church from the age of three. Oh. <laughs> before that, of course, I was a drunken dope peddler in Soho. <laughs> before getting miraculously saved on the streets. And uh, no, but I went to, I went to, how many of you grew up in church? Went, went, grew, grew up, okay, about, uh, I don't know, about a third of us maybe or something like that, okay? I grew up in a brethren church. Anyone heard of a brethren church? Yeah, okay. So I went through a brethren Sunday school. That's as much as an ordeal as it sounds. By the age of seven, I'd done the entire Bible by fuzzy felts. Some of you have no idea what I'm talking about, and you won't until you get to heaven. But I, uh, I grew up in church, um, and this verse, the next verse up, was probably the first verse that I um, learnt. It's probably the most famous verse in the Bible, isn't it? For God so loved the world that he gave his only son that whoever believes in him would not perish but have everlasting life. John 3.16. There you go. That's what we had to do in my Sunday school, by the way. We had to shout out Bible verses. It was lots of fun. It was before multi-channel TV, so we made our own entertainment. The, uh, and when we, I don't know what you do. I'm, I'm sure you do really hyper-brilliant children's work here. My children's work, we had to colour in a picture of a squirrel and write out the verse underneath it. No one knew why. No one knew why, but that's what we did. If we have the next slide, um, and, uh, and whatever the next bit is. So we stuck it on the fridge. We took these pictures of the squirrel home and we stuck them on the fridge. Our parents stuck them on the fridge. But in our church, we had to do something to this verse. We changed it. And we did, for God so loved David that he gave his only son that David would not perish but have everlasting life. We each had to write in our names. And we were taught that God so loved me that he wasn't prepared to let me perish, but did something amazing that I would have everlasting life. That was when I was six, so, you know, ten years ago. <laughs> All those years have passed, and I don't think I've ever left that place. You know, I don't think I've ever left that place of needing this verse. Because, sadly, I do a lot of perishing. I do more perishing than someone who's walked with Jesus for as long as I have should do. I do more perishing because I get irritable and angry. And even when I'm justified, that's still not right. And as I was thinking about tonight, I was thinking, here we are in this room, and the word of God is the same. That he loves us so much that he does not want us to perish. 
Jesus said that the enemy, the thief, comes to steal, kill and destroy. But he comes to give life. And for some of us, maybe we've never known the saving power of Jesus. And I want you to know tonight that God so loves you that you were included when he came to die on the cross and rose again. It was for you as it was for me, as it was for all of us, that there's no need to be in a dead end. There's no need to perish because Jesus will give us life. But I also thought as I was praying for tonight that we get into the state where we do quite a bit of perishing. Life just takes its toll. We get into a mess. We make mistakes in relationships. We make mistakes in choices that we made. We get into a mess. And the word of God is still the same for all of us. He does not want us to perish. The enemy will steal, kill and destroy. Jesus will give life. So I wonder if you'd uh, just bear with me for a second. I wonder if you'd just close your eyes for a minute. You can trust me, I'm a Christian. (laughs) But just close your eyes, because I'd love to pray for you. And I want you, I'm not going to ask you to do anything else embarrassing. But if you know sitting here tonight that you've been doing some perishing, that the enemy has stolen and tried to destroy, whether this is for the first time or the thousandth time, you need Jesus to give you life. Would you just very gently raise your hand, just so I know who I'm praying for? And let me pray for you. Thank you. And for those of you who've raised your hands, just now, just be in your heart telling our Father why you raised your hand. Bring that perishing to him. And Father, you're the God who sees. And you see it all. And you understand it all. And we thank you that you did something that no one should perish, but that all can have life who call on you. And so, Holy Spirit, I ask that you'd bring life to these places of death that people have brought before you right now, that you'd breathe hope and love and comfort. I thank you there are no dead ends in your kingdom, but you're always making a way. And for those people who've just been responding to you, make a way for them. In Jesus' name, amen. Do you know, if that was you, I would urge you, I think there's prayer team at the, or prayer, opportunity for prayer at the end of thing. Go and just share with someone. Go and share with someone. Get someone to pray for you and to cheer you on. If I could have the next slide. Thank you. But this verse still has more power in it. Because when... It says, God so loved the world. He did did mean he loved me. He also meant he loved you. And you, and you, and you, and you, and you, and the people downstairs and on the street outside, and Colchester, and England, and the UK, and Europe. Although he's wondering about that at the moment. But... (laughs) Too soon? Okay. (laughs) And... um, Because it means cosmos. It's the word for everything. That nothing is outside this amazing, pulsating desire in God's heart to bring life to everything that he created, to everyone he created. From the worst sinners to the most complicated bits of government to every aspect 
of our lives and every aspect of our world, he wants to bring life. If I could have the next slide. And this is what it looks like in Tanzania. This is a mud hut. Um, it's a mud hut in a village in Tanzania that I went to um, a few years ago. And, then, and this happens to be the schoolroom, actually, I should say. It's a village of about 4,000 people. And this was the schoolroom. It's quite small for a schoolroom for 4,000 people, isn't it? Because not many children go to school. Loads of children, but not many went to school. So if I could have the next slide. Started working there with the church, little church of about uh, 10 people when it started, now several hundred. Um, and this church uh, began to say, what would the kingdom of God look like in our village? And um, so the first thing they felt the kingdom of God would look like would be children being able to go to school. And so they built a school block. You can see it's made out of not mud, but out of um, breeze blocks. And uh, it's kind of got, it's got uh, open windows, but there it is, it's building. Next slide, please. The year later, they built another school building. And you can just about see, if you can, that there's some bars on the window because this school building has stuff inside worth nicking. Okay, and the next slide. And the reason they kept building school buildings, they built four actually in the end. The reason they kept building school buildings was they were filling it up with children. So rather than the children just working in the fields or working around the home and doing nothing, the children began going to school because the church said children should go to school, children should be educated. And we're going to provide the way for children to be educated. So it's not going to be so expensive. People can't get it. Fantastic. And the next slide. And there's all the children. There's some of the school buildings they built around a square in this village in Tanzania. And that is wonderful. But there was a problem. And the problem was that it was quite dangerous being a girl in this village. Because when the girls, and it was usually the girls, who went to get water from the wells, because this is really in the middle of nowhere, it's drought-prone Tanzania countryside, um, they would often get attacked um, and viciously attacked. And so the church built a well nearer, and that was good. It was good for lots of reasons, because it was nearer. But the girls still got attacked. They built a well nearer, and the girls still got attacked because the problem wasn't the distance of the well from the village. The problem was the fact that there were rapists, and they could do their harm with impunity. They knew that no one was coming. I want you to listen to this um, phone clip. It's from a phone call to 911, the emergency services in the United States. And um, someone has rung 911 because there is an intruder in her home. I don't have anybody to send out there. Okay. Uh, you know, obviously, if he comes inside the residence and assaults you, can you ask him to go away? Or do you know if he's intoxicated or anything? I I've already asked him, I've already told him I was calling you, he's spoken before, but he's down my door, assaulted me. Uh-huh. Um, yeah, so... Is there I, any way I'll, you can safely leave the residence? No, I can't. Because he's blocking pretty much my only way out. Well, the only thing I can do is give you some advice and call the sheriff's office tomorrow. Um, obviously, if he comes in and unfortunately has a weapon or is trying to cause you physical harm, that's a different story. I. You know, the sheriff's office doesn't work up there. I don't have anybody to send. Can you imagine? 
There was a real 911 call from rural United States. There was no one to send. I don't know what your experience of uh, the police is like. Um, mine has been, um, has been bless blessedly small experience, and when it has, it's been positive. Something bad happened to my family or my home, I'd ring the police with the expectation that something good would happen through ringing the police. This lady had no such experience. No one was coming. No one was coming at all. If I could have the next slide. That's true for four billion people in the world. Four billion people in the world live outside the protection of the law. And largely they're poor because rich people can pay for protection. And two billion of those live in what we call stable income countries, middle income countries. So it's not just the people in the war zones and the Democratic Republic of the Congo and Central Africa and places which are really fragile. This is in stable countries, just middle income countries. Two billion people live outside the protection of the law. There is no one who will come if you're in trouble. So that's most of the poor live outside the protection of the law, and that's according to the United Nations report. Yes, next slide, please. If you sexually assault a child in Bolivia, you're more likely to die slipping in a shower or bathtub than you are of going to jail for your crime. And the next one. So that's the reality, sadly, around the world. That's the reality that you are part of solving in your support of IGM as a church. So I want to tell you something a bit more positive, which is about a birthday party for Carla. This happened just a couple of weeks ago. This happened on the 10th of March. And Carla is a 13-year-old girl now. She celebrated her 13th birthday on the 10th of March, uh, and she lives in the Dominican Republic. She had candles, and she had cake, and she was in a care home, a hostel. But she was surrounded by people who were going to make her well and going to make her safe. And they sang happy birthday to her. She couldn't remember the last time somebody had done that. Because the day before, she had been rescued by IJM investigators and the local police. She'd been rescued from a brothel. Just before, the day before her 13th birthday. She wasn't the youngest child to be rescued on that day. Alana was 11 years old. And she was rescued the day before Carla's 13th birthday. The day before that, IJM investigators and prosecutors had led the police to the human traffickers, the slave owners, who controlled Carla and Alana and the place where they were working. And he got arrested and his associates. The day after he was arrested, there was a raid and these girls were rescued. The day after that was Carla's birthday. Your giving as a church made that possible. It really did make that possible. That was in the Dominican Republic where you connect to. And it was the result of a lot of work this stuff doesn't happen overnight. This is not easy stuff. This is not people sitting around saying, oh, do you know what? Today we're going to go and rescue some girls. This is dangerous stuff. 
And they spent years building up the case against this trafficker. They spent dangerous months investigating where he was holding girls and what condition they were, be, they were being held in. They then had to present all that evidence to the police and get the police to, to take it seriously and agree to it and agree to do a raid. And then they had to do a raid and find aftercare home and social workers and so on for the, for the, for, so that they could be a birthday party. And today, and today and tomorrow and for probably the next three years, they will painstakingly pursue those perpetrators through the legal system in the Dominican Republic to get a conviction. Day in, day out, court date after court date, whether whatever the political connections, whatever the bribery connections that go on, they will be there helping make this happen. And they are able to do that because you have been here helping make that happen. So thank you. So thank you. Um, if you have the next slide, please. There are 45 million people like Carla in the world. That's the latest number from the UN. 45 million people held in slavery or slave-like conditions around the world. Um, still, sometimes uh, people get shocked that there are such things in the world today, but it's the experience of 45 million people around the world in slavery. Thank you. And as I said earlier, if you want to be protected, you have to pay for it. In Guatemala, private security forces outnumber the police seven to one. So if you can't afford your private security subscription, when you call the police, no one's coming. No one's coming. Okay, thank you. We did a study, you might have heard of this actually, we did a study in the Philippines about um, minors, so under 18s, available in the commercial sex trade. And actually the Gates Foundation, Bill Gates, paid for us to do some serious academic research into, into what had happened. Next slide, please. And we expected, we hoped there would have been a 20% reduction through about six years of work. Next slide. The actual reduction we found was 79%. So 79% fewer children being exploited and controlled in that setting as a result of the work. How does that happen? Next slide, please. Well, we rescue victims, you know all this, but we res re rescue victims. We help local authorities find people suffering from violence and oppression, and we bring them to safety. Because the only way we're gonna solve slavery, the only way we're gonna protect the millions of people like Carla, is when governments and police services and courts take their responsibilities seriously. And our job is not to stand on the sidelines and throw bricks at those officials, our job is to cheer them on. Our job is to give them the resources they need to do a great job. Our job is to support them. Next slide. So we rescue victims. We bring criminals to justice. We work relentlessly in local courts to ensure traffickers, slave owners, rapists, and other criminals are restrained from hurting others. That 79% drop in the Philippines happened because lots of the bad people were in prison and couldn't keep doing they're slave trading. It also acted as a, as a deterrence because 
people suddenly realized that if they got in the business of slaves, they'd get caught and bad things would happen. So they found other things to do because criminals are just as lazy as the rest of us. The, um, the, the uh, modern slavery commissioner for Essex and Kent Police is a wonderful um, Christian lady and, um, and she works across Essex and Kent looking at slavery issues, lots of people involved in agriculture and so on like that. And she said to me, um, and in fact the, modern, the, the National Modern Slavery Commissioner um, in Westminster said the same thing. It said, organised crime, what do you reckon is the most profitable bit of organised crime? If you were going to be an international criminal mastermind, as frankly some of you look like you are, <laughs> but if you were, what do you think is the most profitable, um, profitable activity to be in? It's not a trick question, it's the obvious answer. Drugs. Okay. The third most profitable activity, what do you reckon? It's harder, I wouldn't have guessed. Arms dealing, guns, weapons, explosives. The second most profitable activity in the world for criminals, criminal gangs, is people trafficking. And the lady said to me, she said, the, the difference is, if you smuggle drugs and guns, you've got a lot of people after you. You've got a lot of police after you. You've got a lot of intelligence services after you. If you smuggle people, not so much. We've got to change the balance. Yeah, exactly. It's not that we want to be soft on drugs or, or guns or explosives, but trafficking human beings should be so dangerous to the criminals yeah. that they dare not go near it. And that's what IJM want to do over the next 10 years. We, want, we have proven, like in the Philippines, that justice for the poor and the vulnerable is possible. And over the next 10 years, we want to make it unstoppable. We want to make it so that the criminals are scared because they know that we will be after them. We know that we will not let people languish in slavery around the world, whether it's in a brothel or a sweatshop or a factory or a fishing fleet or whatever it is. We need them to know that we will be after them. Uh, next slide. We restore survivors, obviously, like I was talking about the birthday party. We provide trauma therapy, counselling. We work with partners to give survivors education, job training, and the tools they need to thrive. And the next one. And we strengthen justice systems. We identify gaps. Sometimes the gap is simply the police don't have the resources. Sometimes the gap is the police are corrupt. <laughs> But even in some of the most corrupt places in the world, there's always someone. Do you remember Jesus said, when he sent his disciples out, he said, look for the man or the woman of peace. Look for someone I've already been working in. You won't know them, but I'll have been working. I'll have been ahead of you. I'll have been working in someone. Make contact with them. Stick with them. Do you know that's what we do? We find the police officer. We find the prosecutor. We find the magistrate who wants to do the right thing who wants to serve their community. And we get behind them and say, what do you need? What support do you need? What research do you need? What encouragement do you need? Next slide, please. Because love never fails. Love never fails. For God so loved the world that he gave his only son, that whoever believes in him shall not perish have everlasting life.
God's love never failed for us. And our love must never fail. The love the Holy Spirit puts in us will never fail. That love has to triumph over fear. In January, I was in um, India and I met this lady called Alice, who, I've, do you know, she's one of those people, she could be 30 or she could be 60, who knows? She's just got one of these amazing faces and, and demeanors. She could be anything in that. Um, and she's tiny, like really tiny, like Polly Pocket tiny. And she is full of joy and mischievousness. She plays pranks all the time. And she has personally led over 1,100 slaves to freedom by going into brick kilns where people are in bonded labor or rice factories or agricultural plant and facing down the scary traffickers and slave owners to say these people must be allowed to go free. If she was in this room, she'd be the one you all didn't notice because she'd just be sitting quietly somewhere at the back. And in the kingdom of God, she's a giant. She is a giant. And if you talk to her, she, say, she would say that she spends most of her life scared out of her mind because these are nasty people that she's facing down. And she says she walks into these situations and she's telling herself, she says, I'm half praying, half talking to myself. Do you ever have days like that? You think, Was that a prayer or am I just kind of... <laughs> yeah. She says, I'm half praying, half talking to myself that God is with me and God is bigger. Yeah. And then she says, then I look them in the eye and I say, they cannot do this anymore. They must let these people go. She had one magistrate complain to the district judge that, he, that she was intimidating him by demanding <laughs> that he made rulings to free these people. And she was called before the district judge and the district judge just looked at her and he said, really? <laughs> She's intimi you're intimidated? And he threw the case out. Little did he know he was in the presence of a spiritual giant yeah. and he should have been scared stiff. Love has to triumph over fear. On that same trip to India in January, I went to a, we were celebrating 15 years of work in Chennai. And so the, the office there had put on a, an awards ceremony. And it was in a really posh hotel. Everyone was dressed up and they'd got... And it was an awards ceremony for public officials who had taken action against slave, slave owners and traffic people. So it was trying to kind of cheer on the policeman and the district administrator and the prosecutor who'd taken a stand, you know? And there was a couple of awards for survivors. And the person, the guest of honour, was the speaker of the upper house of the Indian Parliament, so like our House of Lords. So big cheese. And there was this girl, she was 17. And she'd come down from Calcutta. We'd brought her down from Calcutta because she was receiving an award. And she was from a, if you know the Indian culture at all, she was from a very low caste background, very poor background. And she had been rescued from a brothel 18 months earlier, where she'd been for several years, through her young teens. Everything about this event should have scared the life out of her. She was poor. She was from the wrong caste. She'd had a horribly abused life. And she was in the presence of wealth and power and the great and the good. And she lit up the room. 
She lit up the room because somewhere in her aftercare program, God had got hold of her and she had got hold of God. And she had come to this conviction that she was going to be the voice to her community to stop other young girls getting tricked in the way that she had been tricked. That she was going to take what had happened and make it count. And some of you will remember in um, Moses at the burning bush, where God says to Moses, go back to Egypt and, and you're going to lead my people to freedom. The children of Israel were slaves in Egypt. And God says, let my people go. He says, Moses, you're going to go back there and you're going to lead my people from freedom to freedom from Pharaoh. And Moses responds as we would have responded saying, what, me? Really? <laughs> and God says, yes. And there's a whole conversation. And at the end of it, God says to Moses, and, you know, when you lead the children of Israel out of Egypt, they will not leave empty-handed. They'll take the wealth of Egypt with them. And I heard this young woman speak in this posh hotel, and that story came vividly back to mind. She had not left the most appalling life empty-handed because God had redeemed her. There was no perishing. There was life. And yes, she will have scars, and yes, she will have baggage, but more than that, she will have the unstoppable life of Jesus, making everything new, because there are no dead ends with God. And what the enemy meant for destruction, God could raise to life. Love never fails. Love triumphs over fear. But in this fight for love and in this fight against injustice, love has to triumph over something else. Monotony. How many of you are married? I'm married. How many of you who are married realize, it took me years to realize this, that the secret of being a bit of a great marriage is not in the special moments, it's in the day in, day out monotony of living together. No one ever wrote a song about that, did they? <laughs> it's remembering say good morning and hello, and it's remembering how your partner likes something done, or remembering to the, the bit of housework that really makes a difference, isn't it? It's all those little things. It's day in, day out, small, boring, monotonous ways where we say to each other, I love you. You matter. It's all those small things which actually spell love far better than the extravagant flowers and the meal out and the grand gesture. Lovely as those are. But they ring hollow if they're not built on the foundation of day in, day out love. If I took you to IGM offices around the world, the bit you want to hear about is the day when they march into the factory and set the captive free. You want to hear about the day they raided the brothel that those girls were in and got them free. And those days are wonderful. You want to hear about the day when, they, when the perpetrator got sentenced and went sent to prison, despite the bribes. And those are all great days. But they rest on lots and lots of monotonous days, of going through casework, of painstaking investigation, of reading up laws and writing briefs for lawyers, of turning up at courtrooms, of turning up at police stations. 
Alice that I was telling you about once went to a police station every day for 42 days in order to get the police commander to go and investigate uh, a sweatshop factory. 42 days, just turned up four miles away, walked there, sat there all day. I'm not going away. 42 days. You see, what the criminals know is that the do-gooders usually turn up late and leave early. So all they have to do is wait it out. But love never fails. We're not going to leave early. We're going to stay there again and again and again because that's the example our Saviour has given us. He waits for us. He persists with us. He doesn't go away when we backslide. He doesn't turn his face when we blow it again. He turns up every day, every day. His love is renewed. Every day his mercies are renewed, it says. Every day he turns up until we turn to him, until his love wins. And the last slide, please. This is my verse for IJM. Be joyful in hope. There are lots and lots of good days. There are lots and lots of good days. Like Carla's day, like Carla's birthday. So we are joyful in hope. We are patient in affliction, which means we don't give up. And we are faithful in prayer. If we are going to mortally wound slavery in this world, if we're going to make this the last generation of slaves, then that is a spiritual warfare project. We need all the clever lawyers we can, ha- we can get. We need all the brave investigators we can get. We need all the skillful social workers we can get. But before and after and during all of their skills, we need the power of the Holy Spirit to destroy Satan's power to steal, kill, and destroy people. And um, one of the joys for me joining IJM is the amount of time we commit to prayer. If you're a slightly twitchy donor, I've got to apologize for this next bit, okay? But we, do you know how we start our day? By doing nothing. We spend half an hour, it's called stillness, where we just bring individually all the things we face of the day to the Lord and wait on him. We, are, we listen for his wisdom. We bring difficult situations to his presence for half an hour. We then work really, 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 really hard for a few hours. And then we gather together and pray for what's going on in the different offices around the world and the different places around the world. There's a raid tomorrow. There's this thing's been held up in court in such and such a place. We pray like that. And all across IGM's work, 1,000 people around the world, half an hour personally bringing the work to the Father, half an hour seeking God in prayer together every day. Because with our best skills, we're not good enough. 
because with our best skills, we are just the little boy bringing his packed lunch to Jesus. So it was great he had a packed lunch. It was great someone planned it, great someone made it, great someone wrapped it up. Do you know what I mean? There was lots of stuff that happened to happen, had to happen excellently to make this miracle possible. But it was fundamentally inadequate. <laughs> but in the hands of Jesus, it fed the multitude. Well, brothers and sisters, our love must never fail because his love for us has never failed. And filled with that love, we can love the unlovable in our world, family and friends and colleagues. We can decide to be there for the long haul for them. Through your partnership with IGM, you are loving for the long haul for some of the most, those most horribly abused children who will know that there is a God in heaven who saw them and remembered them and acted because some of his children in Colchester remembered and kept loving. And we will pray like mad because we want to see slavery mortally wounded. We want the captive set free and we want Jesus glorified. Thank you so much.